Amen. Hey, thanks, guys. Oh, I always forget how heavy this thing is. That's not going to make any sense if you're listening online. Hey, I'm Daniel Wagner. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. I'm the student pastor here, and uh, it's really a privilege for me to get to share what we're talking about. We've been in a series called The Movies of Christmas, and uh, we've been making reference to a classic Christmas movie. This, what most people consider the greatest Christmas movie of all time, the number one Christmas movie on a lot of people's lists, uh, to be completely honest with you, I had not seen all the way through, and if you're honest, you probably had not seen it all the way through either. It's a Wonderful Life, dropped in 1946. Uh, obviously, I was not alive in 1946, and neither were most of you. So we missed this movie the first time around, so it really is a classic to a lot of us. Uh, so this movie, uh, really, you know, it's popularized in society. We see lots of clips of it. You know, we probably feel like we have a pretty good idea of what It's a Wonderful Life is really about. Uh, I'm going to give you a plot synopsis in case you were like me and you hadn't watched it the other day. I would encourage you to go out and watch it. You could see the entirety of it on YouTube uh, for free, regardless of your stance on net neutrality. It is on YouTube for free. And uh, let, me, let me give you a, a couple of things. There's a spoiler coming, you know, like there are spoilers that are going to happen here. Hopefully you haven't missed it. Some of you guys saw Star Wars two days ago, immediately put spoilers up. You're terrible people. Some people like me had things to do, so I couldn't go see the 7.30 premiere on Thursday. But I'm going to spoil It's a Wonderful Life for you, because if you hadn't gotten around to it, it's been out since 1946. It's your own fault. So <laughs> here we go. It's a Wonderful Life. It's about a guy named George Bailey, and George is just a good dude. He's a generally great guy. And kind of the story of his life is that he's always kind of given up his dreams to take care of other people. So from a family business to uh, even as a young child, he saved his brother, and that caused him to go deaf in one ear, which kind of limited the things he could do in his life. George was just a good dude, and he really took care of people. So his life goes on and on and on. He takes over the family business, and uh, in the, the stereotype of this kind of negligent uncle, which I hope to fulfill one day when I have nieces and nephews, just the goofy uncle who doesn't take care of things. He loses some money. Uh, the business is kind of in jeopardy. So George is afraid that he's going to be imprisoned, which he most likely is. His business is going to shut down. And the guy who's kind of the bad guy of the community named Henry Potter, which makes me question how original J.K. Rowling was with Harry Potter. Henry Potter is the bad guy. He's kind of taken over the town. He's a big tycoon, you know, classic Americana. So uh, they lose money. George is distraught. So he just says, you know what? The hurt that I would cause my family, the hurt I would cause this community, I just don't know if I can tolerate it. It would probably be better if I was just dead. So he makes a plan to kill himself. Well, enter Clarence, an angel, who's his guardian angel. That would be my luck that I would get a guardian angel named Clarence. And Clarence intervenes in a mission to earn his wings. Don't know how theologically accurate that is. You know, don't go there for your angel theology. But Clarence intervenes in order to earn his wings. He probably should have intervened to change his name from Clarence to something else. But he picked his own reward, so he's getting the wings. Uh, the world goes on, the movie goes on, to see what the world would have been like if George would never have been born. And he sees that a lot of people whose lives he was in contact with kind of went sideways because he wasn't there. His wife never got married, so his kids were never born. His brother died because he wasn't there to intervene. The guy, Henry Potter, not Harry Potter, who can do no wrong, but Henry Potter, he took over the town. It was just bad without George. So he went and wished that he was 
back to life after things kind of got sideways. He came back, and then everyone was ecstatic because they didn't know where he was. People really realized, and George saw, how much people really missed him, how much people really cared about him and loved him, how much joy other people found in him. So uh, the town kind of took up an offering to compensate for the debt that George owed. Then his brother came back to town. Clarence got his wings. You know, good, happy Christmas time movie. So It's a Wonderful Life is really a story about joy, which is where we're going this week. We've talked about faith. We've talked about cynicism and being a Christmas time Grinch. We're talking about joy. Christmas is full of joy, right? We sing joy to the world, and like you see joy over doors and businesses, and, and that's really the thing, right? Now, what is joy? Let me give you a definition that I'm fond of. Joy and happiness are, are close to the same thing. Lots of people will split hairs and try to isolate them and make them two different camps, but joy, in my opinion, really is just a deep-set happiness. Not a conditional happiness that comes and goes, depending on your circumstances, but joy is a deep-set happiness. A happiness that doesn't depend on your circumstances when things are good or bad or if things go sideways. Joy is a deep-set happiness. Now, when we're in church and we're talking about being happy and God wanting us to be happy, there's just a lot of bad theology, really, around what that looks like. So a lot of times as a church and as Christians, followers of Jesus, we can be hesitant to even think that God would want us to be happy. But let me tell you what, God does want us to be happy In Matthew, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about God being a good father who gives good gifts. Gifts produce joy. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, This is the part where you talk to your neighbor. If you're an introvert, I'm sorry, please hate me. You can email me your hate mail. But here's what I want us to do. Uh, Find someone that you don't know or want to get to know better, whatever, your decision, and talk about these three things. What's the best gift you've ever gotten? What's the worst gift you've ever gotten? What's the best gift you've ever given? Take a minute, minute and a half, whatever. Be honest. It doesn't have to be a Christmas gift, but that would be cool. Anyway, talk amongst yourselves. What's the best gift, worst gift, best gift you've ever given? You could also take this time to slip Christmas present suggestions to your people. best gift, worst gift, best gift you've ever given. See, look at you guys being friendly, man. All right, uh, I'll give you 20 seconds, 20 seconds. I have a clock. All right, wrap it up, wrap it up. Some of you guys must have gotten some very terrible gifts. All right, so here's the thing. Gifts bring joy. Good gifts bring joy. Bad gifts, not necessarily. You kind of do that thing where you're like, yay, socks. I really needed new socks. Everybody has those gifts, but we want good gifts, right? That's, that's the goal. That's really what we want. And let me tell you this. The heart of God is to give us good gifts. Even things that we might perceive as bad, like the spiritual equivalent of socks, is really a good gift for God to bring about some purpose in our life that he sees fit. Now, we're going to go through a lot of passages of the Bible today. I promise we won't live in any one place for a long time. 
kind of feel weird apologizing for how much scripture we're going to use, but I want you guys to know that uh, I'm getting these things from the Bible, not from Daniel Wagner's personal opinions on joy. So this is God's heart. In Jeremiah 32, 41, he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. God's desire is for his people to flourish, and he rejoices in doing good. Next, John 10, 10. We talked about this last week. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, Jesus, has come that they may have life and have it abundantly. God's desire is for us to have full life, full joy. That is the ideal with Jesus, is unlimited joy. Satan wants to steal that thing away from us. He wants us to be filled with sorrow and despair. He's come to steal and kill and destroy us. That's not God's heart. God's heart is to flourish us, that we might have life and have it to the fullest. Next, Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And we get that, right? You get that. A joyful heart is like good medicine, right? When life is good and we're, we're filled with joy, when things are clicking right and everything is as it should be, we're filled with joy. That's good for our soul. I mean, it's good for all of us. We just feel good when things are good, right? But when we're in despair, when things go sideways, when we give up, when we lose hope, when we're joyless, it's like it dries up our bones, right? We get that. We see that. And here's the thing. In a room this size, around this time of the year, look, we say this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but the holiday season is just hard. I don't know what it is. I really don't. Maybe it's that we remember how things used to be. We think about life and think about how you know things used to go and how things used to be better and we're just not pleased with our current circumstances, so we're sad. Maybe it's that we expect that things should be better by now. Like well, you've put a lot of work in this last year and you wanted to change some circumstances. You wanted your family to be better. You wanted this relationship to improve. You wanted this to improve in your workplace. You expect this from your kids. Whatever it is, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's that we remember people who aren't with us. You know, that we, this is a season where we remember loss and where we miss people that we love who are no longer here. So I'm not going to pretend that in a room this size, we're all great at joy. It's something that the Lord has really had to teach me to be joyful, regardless of circumstance. But here's the thing. We're all motivated by joy. We're all motivated by happiness. Everything we do, we do to fuel our pursuit of happiness. Great thinkers across history have done that, even in our own founding document of America, We pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? We think that those things are intrinsic to life, that we would chase after happiness. Here's uh, a quote from a French thinker. Talks about what we do for happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this. Object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even to those who hang themselves, right? We are driven by happiness. We're driven by that pursuit that we just want to feel good. We want things to be right. We want to be happy. We want to have this deep set happiness. We want to have this joy. So everything we do is focused on that. And you probably know that if you've interacted with society at all. You know, there are dozens of books, hundreds of books at every bookstore about pursuing happiness and having a joyful life and having a full life. I mean, there was even like 
chicken noodle soup for the soul. I don't even know what that means, but I promise it's about happiness. Like, there's just so much about it. So someone who worked at the New York Times, who worked on bestseller lists, compiled this list. I mean, this is it. I'm going to give you guys this, and it's going to make your life happy. It's going to be perfect. Here we go. This is the fundamentally sound, surefire, top five components of happiness. I didn't make that up. I promise. Uh, Number one, be in possession of the basics. Food, shelter, good health, and safety. Two, get enough sleep. Three, have relationships that matter to you. Four, take compassionate care of others and of yourself. Five, have work or an interest that engages you. So here's the thing. If life was like that all the time, I'm sure we would be fundamentally sure. Fire, top five, list of happiness, kind of happy, joyful, you know? Like if, if life really worked that way, where you know that you could, you know, kind of, oh yeah, I, I got the basics, I have enough sleep, yep, I have important relationships that are all going great. Uh, I really am sure that I take care of myself and other people, right? And, uh, you know, I'm interested in work and work is going great, right? If those things are clicking, those things are really good. Those things are good things that come from God. But uh, how many times does our life look like we're shooting 100% in all those categories? Not often, right? Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's an external thing. But here's the deal, regardless of whatever it is. These things might be really good guides, but things just don't work like that, at least not for me. Maybe some of you guys out there, your life is just great. You got all these things that are really working out. But there's some stuff that gets in the way of me really pursuing those things, really having those things, really making sure that the things that can make me happy, the things that I can find joy in, are actually working. Uh, This, the author goes on to elaborate on. I think this is a good article for you to read. It's actually called The Rap on Happiness, which I'm not about to freestyle rap, even though I'm confident I'm probably the best freestyle rapper on staff. Low bar, but I'm I'm sure of that. Robert and I will have a rap battle later. Uh, Here we go. The real problem with happiness is neither its pursuers nor their books. It is happiness itself. Happiness is like beauty. Part of the glory lies in its transience. It is deep but often brief, and much of the great prose and poetry make note of this. It seems there's a sort of calamity built into the very texture of life. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall, that the beloved dies. No amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. Right? So all of our life we're pursuing this happiness. Like we want it. We just want to be full. We want to be joyful. We want to be happy. But we know that those things don't last. So a lot of times we give up, right? We can get to a place where we're so dismayed, where we're so disappointed, where we're so crushed in spirit because life just hasn't worked out the way we want to that we just give up. I mean, the line of the movie, it's a wonderful life, but is it? Don't you feel like that sometimes? Man, is my life really worth it? Am I ever going to be happy? Would it just be better if I was dead? C.S. Lewis goes on to talk about attachment like this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, 
it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of hell, of love, is hell. Sorry. So, here, here's the thing, right? We see this. We know this. To live is to get hurt sometimes. So we give up. We don't want to be joyful. We don't want to be happy. We know that God wants to bless us. We know that God wants us to be joyful, right? That's his goal, that we would have abundant life. Sometimes it's just too hard. Sometimes we just don't care. We'd be content to just sit in our sadness and our sorrow. But let me tell you what, that is not the will of God. See, joy is a biblical command. God commands us to be joyful. If we're his people, if we know him, if we love him, if we have a relationship with him, if we're pursuing him with our life, then we are commanded to be joyful. We're not going to go through all these passages, but here's a list of just a few passages that I found that command for us to be joyful. Rejoice in the good that God has done to you. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. Make a joyful noise which is, you know, some of you can't sing. That's your verse. Make a joyful noise. Rejoice in the Lord. Next thing, rejoice in the hope of the Lord. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Rejoice and be glad in the day that the Lord has made. We are supposed to be a joyful people. And so often we're not, right? It's hard. So we don't care. But God commands for us to be joyful, in line with his abundant life in, life, with in line with us living in his kingdom, we are commanded to be people who are joyful, who have joy. Now, what's our hope supposed to be in? What's our joy found in? It's found in the Lord and the things of the Lord. But we're supposed to be joyful. Things change whenever you know it's the law, right? So we've told a series of speeding stories. Robert has confessed, so it's time for me to tell a story of my own speeding. Here's the thing. I love Mississippi. Been here my whole life. Parents are from Mississippi. Most of my grandparents are from Mississippi, so like I got deep Mississippi roots. And there's just something about Mississippi whenever you get out of, outside of the metro area where people just stop putting up speed limits. You know, you just turn off on the highway, and then it's like, well, everybody lives here. They know how fast you're supposed to go. Well, I don't know. I don't live in Louisville, right? So that's where the story takes place. So I get off. I'm going to uh, Lake Forest Ranch, going to hang out at a camp. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, fashionably late, as is sometimes my custom. So I just, you know, accelerate because I'm on a mission from God, right? Blues Brothers. So I'm driving, trying to go, and uh, I see the blue lights, right? Because I just guess how fast I'm supposed to go. Okay, on the count of three, shout out a number. Whenever you don't know what the speed limit is supposed to be, you drive this fast. Three, two, one. Okay, see, right, everyone would have been in trouble, right? You just don't know. You just drive. You just go, you know? Robert said 95. That's a different story. We just... So here's the thing. Like, I'm driving uh, 45. When in doubt, go 45. That was my origin, my upbringing. So that's what my family held to. So that's what I did. And I was doing about mm, 47 and a 35. And uh, caught the blue lights. Cop pulled me over. Very familiar, though. Every time I'm in that part of Louisville, I'm sure to go 35 miles an hour. Why? Because things change whenever you know it's the law. And I hope that's 
our prayer, right, is we follow God. Like, that's my prayer for you, is that we would be joyful people because we wouldn't see it as an option. We'd see it as a command. Not an option, but a command. The second thing, we need to pursue godly joy instead of sinful pleasure. That we would seek godly joy instead of worldly pleasure. Not as easy as it sounds. Here are a couple passages that I hope guide us. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Sounds counterintuitive. Sounds the opposite of what I've said. But look at the verse before. That's when we pursue the way that seems right to us, the way that its end is death. So when we're pursuing happiness and things that are outside of God's will, outside of God's law, outside of God's commands for our life, even though it might be good for a little while or might seem good on the outside, we know it's not always joyful, doesn't always last. Its end may be grief. Romans 6 puts it like this, but from what fruit were you getting at at that time that had uh, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, to its end, eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we get that, right? There was a way that we lived our life before. There's a way that we live our life in our own way where we're seeking pleasure, we're seeking happiness, we're seeking a life of sin. And those things now we're ashamed of, right? Because we see that there's no life in there. We see there's no lasting happiness in there. We see there's no lasting joy in there. But what we see is whenever we follow the ways of God, whenever we live in his kingdom, whenever we follow him, those are the things that we're not ashamed of. Those are the things that bring good fruit, right? That we would be his people and that we would bear fruit that honors God. This is uh, about Moses in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses, in this context, you know the story of Moses. If you're familiar, you'll follow me. Moses grew up in the palace. He had an option, an opportunity to fall back on the crown and the perks of living in Pharaoh's house that he could have taken. But that would have been fleeting pleasures of sin, when he knew God, knew what God was calling him to. And instead, he pursued that. But Moses saw it, right? He identified this sin is pleasurable. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that sin doesn't feel good. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you you can't have a little bit of fun sinning. But I'll tell you what, those pleasures are fleeting. They betray you. Satan looks so enticing. His things look so good. So we buy the lie. and We believe whatever he wants us to think about God really didn't say that or did God say this or you should do this. Whatever the little whisper we listen to is, right? We follow that and its end is death. Not joy. Might feel good for a little while, but that's not what God has for us. What God has for us is greater. He wants us to have the fullness of joy in him. Here's the thing about joy. There's a tension, right? Because as you pursue joy, you're going to make a little bit of sacrifice, 
right? Sometimes it's just easier to sin. It's more convenient to sin. We want the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. But here's the thing. As we pursue joy, as we pursue a life where we are seeking joy in Jesus, we've got to realize that joy is to be found here and there. Joy is about here and there. Where's here and there? Here on earth, there in heaven. We're promised joy here on the earth. We're promised joy there in heaven. It's hard for me to have like delayed gratification in things. You know, I usually want what I want when I want it. We live in a culture of microwaves and microwave pizzas. Like the fact that Hot Pockets have been so successful in America shows how impatient we are as a society. And that metric is probably true. You love Hot Pockets. Don't look at me like that. Everyone loves them. So here's the thing. We want what we want when we want it. That's just who we are as people. But joy is about here and it's about there. So joy here on the earth. We find a great example of that in Romans 14. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There is a way to live our life. There is a way to follow God in obedience that brings us joy here. That's the kingdom, right? As we live in the kingdom, as we follow Jesus, we are about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then there in heaven, we have joy to look forward to. One day, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Right? We know that one day there is great reward coming to us in heaven. When we die, we'll be with God. And God will tell us how proud he is of all the ways that we followed him. Right? Don't we want to please God with our life? Isn't that our ultimate joy and our greatest treasure? To be faithful to the one who's given us so much? This year, I've had a great opportunity to be around a couple of really great men. Uh, two of them are going to be on the screen here in a second. Panya Yin and Saul Camacho. They're both kind of the heads of two partner organizations that we have. And here's the thing. Panya works for the Hard Places community in Cambodia, where he leads teams fighting against uh, the atrocity that is sex trafficking. And Saul Camacho, uh, Dr. Camacho, he serves at Matamoros Children's Home. Here's the thing. Both of these guys, incredible men, really love the Lord. But here's what struck me the most about them. Both of them have given up opportunities to chase things that are outside of God's will for their life. Now, both of these guys have given up money. They've given up, you know, career advancement. They've given up more recognition in society. And, and that might not be you. The last time I preached, I preached about money. So, like, it's possible to have money and still love God. You can do that. I'm not telling you that to pursue joy in your life, you may have to take a pay cut or take a new job or go work for a 501c3 there need to be real people in the real world. I'm thankful for you guys as you go out and you do the work of ministry. But here's the thing. These guys, these great men, have denied opportunity time and time again to step outside of what God has for their life and live a life that pursues things that God did not have for them. So I don't know what that is for you. You know what that is for you. But I would challenge us that we would seek godly joy instead of worldly pleasure. And then third, the last thing as we round towards home, we cultivate joy in our own lives. 
right? We've got to cultivate joy in our own lives. We know God wants to give it to us. We know it's a gift. We know it's there for us. But do we really want it? And what do we do to get it? There's some work that has to happen, right? There are some things that we have to do in order to have the joy that God wants to give to us. A present's only a present if you take it, right? Psalm 16, 11 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has made known to us the path of life in his presence, his presence that we can go to, his presence that we can be in. There's the fullness of joy. So I'm asking you a question. Are you in God's presence? Are you actively living your life in a way where you, where you think, God, am I doing this for you? God, I want to live my life for you. God, do I do this or I do this because I want to honor you? Where we carve out time in our, the way we spend our money and the way we spend our time to honor God, right? We need to be in God's presence. That's where we have the fullness of joy. John 15 talks about the same thing. If you abide, if you keep my commandments, so you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that you may have joy and that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Jesus has given us joy. He's given us joy in his presence. So we've got to be people who are in his presence and people who follow his commands. Because in his ways, right, there's the fullness of life. He's given us the path to the fullness of life. And we need to be faithful to live it out. That's where we'll find joy. And then when life isn't great sometimes, there's this word in James 1 that we would count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect. That we may be complete mature, perfect, not lacking in anything. So sometimes life isn't good, right? I look around a room like this, and I know we get a lot of hurt. I look around a room like this, and I know that there's a lot going on. Your life is not always going to be up and to the right. Your pursuit of joy and happiness, not always going to be good. Those sure top five, surefire ways, fundamentally sound ways to get joy in your life, those things only work when they're working. But more times than not, life can go sideways. But to cultivate joy in our life, to take the gift of joy that God has for us, we would see that even in the bad things, even in the trials, that we're supposed to take joy because God is working something better in us than what we could really see. We don't pick difficult circumstances for ourselves. No one does. But God gives those things to us so that he can make us more like himself. The whole point of joy, the whole way you see joy is the fruit of someone's life, I think is this, that your faith lived out is an overflow of your joy. You want to know if you're joyful? You want to know if you have joy in your life? You want to know if you have joy of the Lord? You're going to live it out. You're going to live your faith out. You're going to risk whatever the complications of living your faith out would be to express your joy in the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. So I don't know what that is for you. You know what that is for you. Maybe it's a family relationship. You gotta go out on a ledge. You gotta be faithful to live your faith out in front of people. Maybe it's something in your workplace. Maybe there's a compromising situation that you're not sure you can navigate. But if you live your faith out, it's gonna be an expression of the joy that God's given you. So often, we choke joy out of our life. Right? Like, we know that God wants to give us joy. We know that we're supposed to live our life in response to him. But so often we restrict it 
We don't allow God to do his thing. Instead, we live on our own. We seek sinful pleasure instead of godly joy. But for you and for me, for us in this place, it really is my prayer that we would live out our faith as an overflow of joy, a gift that God wants to give us. As the band comes up and a couple of people transition to go celebrate baptism, we're going to look at one last Christmas time verse that we would know that we have good news of great joy. Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So what is this good news of great joy? It's that God, the God of everything, the God who created the world, the God who sustains the world, the God who created you and me and the wood for the pews we sit on, that he cares about your life, that he cares enough about your life to leave the glory of heaven and live life as a man, a perfect life showing us how to live ours. And he died a death that we deserved. And it's a wonderful life. The people of the town covered George's debt and we've had a greater debt covered for us. Jesus has paid that. And in that, he shows us he loves us. This great joy is that the God of the universe cares about you, that he cares about me. There are days where we feel so minuscule, so tiny, like our life doesn't matter. But when you look at the manger, when you think about Christ, when you think about what God has done, you know that you're important to God. That should motivate us to live a life that's joyful and that we can one day expect to reap the fruit of this, John 16, 22, that we would have sorrow now, but that when we see Jesus again, our hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from us. Let's pray.